time for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my brewing brothers and sisters. Howdy, howdy. <laughs> All right, so we're here. Uh, we are doing the first episode of A Brew Strong. And I'm here with my uh, co-hosts, uh, John Palmer and Hello. Tasty McDowell. Hi, everybody. And uh, Brew Strong is uh, a new show that we're doing at the Brewing Network. Uh, you might recognize me from that other fine show, the Jamil Show, as uh, Justin likes to say. Uh, and that's that show we talked about styles and brewing to style, and we got a lot of requests from people about doing more technical brewing questions. You know, you know, how, how do I do this? You know, you know, why do does the mash pH need to be uh, you know around uh, you know five point two to five point four? Why? Why is, uh, you know, the mash temperature this, or why is, uh, you know, uh, something about, uh, you know, water or extract or anything, any question you have about uh, the technical aspects of brewing to make better beer, how to brew strong, uh, that's the kind of thing we're going to cover here. That's right. And uh, we've set up an email address, brewstrong at thebrewingnetwork.com. You can send your, your email, your questions in to us, and we'll also have a live chat. We don't have a live chat today because this is the first episode, and uh, we haven't really announced it. This is, you know, we're coming in under the radar, and uh, normally one of the things we like is for people to be, uh, you know, live on the show with us and be in the chat room, uh, discuss your questions with other brewers there, other other uh, uh, people that uh, listen to the show, and then uh, we'll we'll answer some of those for you live. And we don't want to give you just a you know a quick half-assed uh, answer. We want uh, like a strong answer. We want a full answer. So that's why uh, we have. Uh, you know, on the show, we're going to have some of the uh, best experts uh, around. We're going to we're going to bring in some of the uh, the industry experts to answer some questions for you. And we've also got you know some great experts in the studio. Uh, I, you know, sitting here with me, uh, John Palmer. I think uh, I can't do a show without uh, without a John. You know, <laughs> I I always need a John around to uh, you know a lot of keep me busy that, yeah. and. Uh, you know, so uh, just having a John—that's that's, that's uh, just one of the things I guess over the years that I've uh, come to appreciate. And uh, John Palmer, author of How to Brew, which I think is the greatest book for learning how to brew, taking you, you from you know uh, n- knowing nothing about brewing to being you know an all grain expert. That's the book that'll do it. So anywhere you are in your process, when when I when I started uh, uh, t- brewing, the uh, uh, thing for me was, uh, you know, I already knew quite a bit. I was already pretty successful before I got your book, How to Brew. And when I did, I was like, oh, yeah, I already know how to brew. And like I think a lot of people out there do. Yeah. And, you know, I cracked that thing open, and I'm like, well, you know, or I had a question one day, and I'm thinking, yeah, I didn't see the answer in any other books, you know, what people are saying. You know, I go through research for things. 
And then I flip through head around. I'm like, wow, yeah, he's got a good answer in here for this. Oh, oh okay, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's got got some good information. And I started learning stuff from this, and I, I started reading more and more. I'm like, okay, so there's a, as much as I know about brewing, there's still stuff in there that I didn't know that was very helpful for me. And uh, <clears throat> so I started giving that book as a gift to people I brewed with and, you know, people that have been brewing, you know, 10 years, 20 years. I started handing that out as a, like, Christmas gift. I'm like, hey, you know. I know you think you don't need this, but, you know, put it by the bowl and start flipping through. And, you know, anything you're curious about, start flipping through. You'll be you'll be shocked at uh, the qu- quantity of information in there, the quality. And then John and I, we did a book together called uh, Brewing Classic Styles, which yep. uh, I've pimped heavily on uh, the uh, Jameel show uh, <laughs> earlier on. And uh, I think... That, that's that been uh, quite successful. A lot of people out there brewing those recipes, and people very appreciative of that. So uh, there's a couple of couple of good books, and yeah. uh, John uh, Palmer was uh, involved in both of those. Well, it's, it's really nice to be here, and uh, I'm looking forward to the, you know contributing heavily to the show and uh, getting back into, you know, reader questions, listener questions, and helping everybody brew strong. Yep, absolutely. And, and uh, our our Guest host in our in our third chair today is uh, one of my dear friends, Tasty McDole, Mike McDole. We call him Tasty, and the the you know why do we call him Tasty? The the story the the, the reality beers. is Tasty beers, very tasty beers. I've I've said many times, this guy could pee in a glass and <laughs> hand it to me and say, "Well, I brewed this." <laughs> and I'd drink it. I'd drink the whole thing just because you know if he says he brewed it. That's all it takes for me to, 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 to drink it. That's another good reason for me to watch where I piss. I mean, yeah, exactly. You <laughs> might be trying to collect it, you know, covertly. Exactly. I mean, it may actually be really good. You know, the guy pretty much processes a lot of beer, so his urine probably does taste probably pretty hoppy, I would imagine, and nice uh, malt character. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Very drinkable. Yeah. <laughs> right. well, and good head on it. That's, that's the thing about uh, you, and I think that makes you a great uh, person to have on this show, is that uh, you know how to make tasty beer. And, and that's, that's not just a line that's not BS, that's not making anything up. This guy, everybody, he makes beer that is so drinkable. Everything you brew is highly drinkable. Very tasty. Any anybody who knows a lot about beer or knows nothing about beer is going to drink it and go, "Wow, that's really tasty." Well, thanks, right? and that's and that's why we we got the tasting. How? All right. So, explain to us in in thirty seconds or less how you make really tasty beer. Well, I, you know, I think it's uh, I keep it really pretty simple. You know, I pay a lot of attention to the to the uh, basic elements of brewing. Uh, ingredients are really important. Fresh ingredients, good water, and then uh, I've. Uh, pay a lot of attention to the process i really pride myself in a like a repeatable you know brewing process where i can uh, feel the effects of uh, recipe changes or uh, other equipment changes and stuff mm-hmm. and uh pretty much the rest is just luck i guess well and and more than anybody i think you know one of the things you tend to do a lot is talk to other brewers and you you kind of have a pulse of a lot of the the brew community and you're you're, you're such a a likable personal <laughs> personality and you know you're yeah. you're so friendly you get along with everybody and i yeah. think so people tend to talk to you a lot about their brewing questions yeah. and their brewing their brewing failures or brewing successes, yeah. and you seem to yeah, take I, a lot from that and yeah. kind of work it into your own brewing. Yeah, I genuinely enjoy talking to people about brewing, uh, both you know craft brewers and amateur. And uh, 
because I don't take myself too seriously, I'm really open to what they say. I mean, even if I, you know, I believe a certain thing, you know, real strongly, I'll uh, pretty much, you know, be able to listen to what they have in mind. You're willing to try different yeah, techniques. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Right. I take myself so seriously. I have a book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> classic yes. style. You see, I don't. Yeah, that's and right. you know, yeah. if anybody disagrees with me, I go look. It's in print. <laughs> you know, it can't be wrong. It's look. It's 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 right. It's right here. It's. Uh, <laughs> And then if it's not already in print and I say it and I need to back it up, I just put it on my website and then, you know, then look, it's on the internet. It must be true. Whereas I say, what did, what did I say? And Oh, typo. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and today we're going to get into uh, the topic of melanoidins. We had uh, uh, some folks that, uh, you know, email us all the time. And one of the, the things that people email us about... Uh, on a regular basis, is melanoidins in beer. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what are they and, and all this. And so what we'll do after we take a, a short break, we're going to get into uh, some uh, listener question about uh, melanoids. Uh, John's going to present some uh, interesting uh, technical information about melanoids, and we're going to discuss it. We're going to answer some more of your emails, and, uh, and we'll do that right after this break. Brew right. Brew smart. Brew Strong. This is Brew Strong. Hey, Push, the new brewery's looking good. Thanks, Finn. Piece by piece. Well, let's fire up. Whoa! Is that a new kettle? Yeah, just got it brand new, but paid half price. What? And that blade scale? 40% off. The new tap handle? Five bucks instead of 13. Got a new regulator for the brew sand, too, but five bucks instead of 25. Dude, where are you stealing all this stuff from? Where else? The more beer deal of the day. Announcing the Beer, Beer, and More Beer Deal of the Day. Every day, a new fantastic deal from big items to small that will blow you away. Boil kennels, carboy carriers, sterile siphon starters, digital timers. Watch morebeer.com every day for a new deal, and you just might find the item you've been waiting for at a price you cannot believe. Hurry, because stock is limited on most items. And that sweet Guinness cap, let me guess. The The More Beer beer Deal deal of the day. Day. Yeah, I knew it. Come on, let's brew something. Find the More Beer Deal of the Day at morebeer.com. Celebrity Voices Impersonated. White Labs is a leader in pure yeast and fermentation services, serving the beer, wine, and distilling industries from worldwide producers for more than a decade. White Labs has three all-new vials for you to pitch this year, home brewers. so fire up your kettles, fill up your fermenters, and get ready for Cry Havoc, the signature yeast strain from Charlie Papazian. This yeast can ferment both ales and lagers and is great for bottle conditioning, too. Second, a cream ale blend of ale and lager yeast strains. This blend creates a clean, crisp, light American lager-style ale. Last, a Belgian-style Saison ale yeast blend. This blend melds Belgian-style ale yeast and Saison strains to create complex, fruity aromas and flavors. Get complete fermentation quickly with this blend's spicy, earthy, and clove-like flavors. White Labs, your brewing partner for great yeast. These new strains are available now for home brewers, breweries, and homebrew shops everywhere. White Labs, it's all in the vial. Live. Beer Radio. The Brewing Network. 
the Brewcasters. If you're just starting, don't be discouraged by all this stuff. It's exactly. so easy. Just throw it yeah. together. Put yeah. some sugar and some water and some yeast in there. Network. Back to your hosts, Jamil Zanashef and John Palmer. Putting the testicles in technical. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're talking about uh, melanoidins in this this uh, show here. And uh, in the Brew Strong show, where you're learning to brew strong, we're, we're going to be kind of tackling uh, one topic in in full in detail answering your questions about that topic answering uh, you know having our experts talk about it whether it's uh, john palmer or maybe uh, somebody uh, in the industry as well and uh, our guest hosts will also uh, you know weigh in on those and we want to really kind of give you a mini education about uh, you know various brewing topics so today is going to be uh, melanoids and uh, steven houston he sent me an email uh, not long ago and what he was asking about he said uh uh, he wanted to know about melanoids. He said, uh, "What are they, and how do I add them to my beer?" I've heard, you know, he says he heard sure. that they were good for beer, that they made a better beer somehow. Uh, you know, John, what what are melanoids, and and how do you put them into a beer? Okay, well, melanoids are they're they're the Browning part of uh, Maillard reactions or Maillard reactions, however you pronounce the French word. Um, there, you know, Maillard reaction is uh, often compared to or called caramelization. You know, people talk about, oh yeah, we, in this in this wort boil, I'm boiling it for a long time, or I'm, I'm uh, trying to boil it uh, hard, you know, to high temperature to get some caramelization, to get a little more sweetness or some you know toffee flavor in the beer. Well, those usually are actually Maillard reactions, and uh, these are non-enzymatic browning reactions. Uh, that occur in all foods. Anytime you cook mm-hmm. something, whether it's toast in the toaster or pot roast or you know grilling a steak, uh, you're talking about Maillard reactions. Well, that's one of the things I say. You know, is uh, uh, you know when you make the difference between uh, a Maillard reaction or, or something with melanoidins, uh, that's the difference between bread and, yep. and toast. With toast, you have some melanoidins that have been developed through these Maillard reactions. That's right. Uh, with steak. Uh, if you microwave a steak, you don't get a whole lot of uh, you get this gray mass. Right. That, uh, <laughs> you barbecue a steak, you grill a steak, you get melanoidins. You get flavor, and yeah. and melanoidins are are flavor, mm-hmm. a lot of flavor, right? That's right. So yeah, melanoidins are is actually one piece of a Maillard reaction. Maillard reactions, you get uh, you get uh, you get esters, you get uh, volatile aromatic components, you get uh, the browning. That's the melanoidin. Uh, there's another uh, lower temperature browning reaction that are co- uh, a product that are called chromophores, which you know means c- color something in Latin. Um, and then you have for color, like, uh, like yeah, I suppose the I, small box of crayons. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the good. one you get like when you're at the Chevys and they give you the kids. <laughs> I, we should put that on Wikipedia. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. Uh, the, the the other one is. I forgot. No, uh, the the third one is uh, antioxidants. You do you get uh, antioxidant products out of Maillard reactions, and uh, a lot a lot of times in brewing you'll hear that dark beers have better shelf life than pale beers. You know, I've experienced that very thing. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
So those are those are due to due to malleate reactions producing antioxidants. Hmm. So you so a malleate reaction Maillard reaction is the combination of an amino acid to a sugar. It's a chemical reaction. It occurs with a little bit of heat and in the presence of some moisture. Whereas caramelization is a sugar to sugar reaction where the sugar breaks down and recombines into you know different form. And uh, those only occur at high temperatures and very low moisture. Whereas your browning reactions, which, you know, like as we were saying, are cooking reactions, those occur over a wide variety of temperatures. They always occur in wort boils. And uh, each particular beer style, in fact, has characteristic Maillard reactions that occur during the brewing process. Whether you're talking about a Munich Helles or a Munich Dunkel or an Amber Ale or, you know, an imperial stout. Each of them, each each brewing process has characteristic Maillard reactions that contribute to the characteristic flavor of that style. Some more than others, though. That's right. So a style with a lot of Maillard reactions would be uh, all your darker beers, the stouts, obviously, and that and a lot of that comes yep. from the grains. That's right. Which, again, those dark colors in the grains are Maillard reactions mm-hmm. from malting and the processing the malt. And others like a Doppelbach, maybe that's coming from a decoction mash as well, or can come from the else. decoction mash, and it can come from the malts themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then and the you, boil, and the boil. You know, the, these reactions will occur at every stage of the brewing process, and you know, when it comes to us as homebrewers trying to mimic a particular style, the the closer we mimic, uh, I guess what you'd call the commercial or standard brewing process for that style. You know, the more our beer is going to taste just like that commercial example. Uh, it's when you, you know, cut corners or if you do a different boil, you know, based on your equipment. Uh, you know, if you do a high-gravity boil for a style or you do a low-gravity boil and then try to boil it forever to, you know, build up the wort to get to your target gravity, you're going to get a different beer. Uh, it's going to have di- slightly different Maillard reactions and slightly different flavors than the commercial example. Well, and I find this to be true also, and, and I think it's uh, impossible to exactly mimic uh, commercial beer. You find the same right. thing, Mike? Uh, oh, yeah, you know, definitely, sure. Because you don't have the same equipment. You don't have the same uh, process in place, and you never will. And, and I find it odd when people, you know, they go, well, you know, Brewery X, they do it this way, so, you know, your recipe must not be correct, or, you know, because they, they put this in there or that in there, or they, they don't have all those extra grains in there. And the fact is, well, you know, you're boiling different, or you're you know, fermenting different, or, you know, your grain supply is different. All these things are different. So you need to make some adjustments if you're going to try and mimic right. a commercial beer. And, and I think what John's saying here is uh, it's a huge amount of the, the, the melanoidins that are, are impacting that. That's right. You can, you can get the same overall flavors you know, from a couple of different routes. But if you're, if you're, especially if you're going for a beer that depends on the melanoid character, mm-hmm. you know the the browning and the the aromatics that the that a particular like a, a double bock, a double bock that's been you know decoction mashed. If you're really trying to target that style and get it you know as true to Polliner, Salvatore, or um, uh, what's the Celebrator, you know as you can, you're going to need to you know more closely mimic. The mm-hmm. process, the process that they're using, because that will produce the same reactions, uh, as opposed to another process, where maybe you do a single infusion mash with 
uh, melanoidin malt. Mm-hmm. You know, you get a lot of the same thing, but it's it's not exactly the same. Right. It's never exactly the same, but, uh, you know, I've always found that a lot of times you try and do exactly the same thing. Again, it's not you're, gonna not gonna be, you're not going to be successful. You, know, right. you, you have to make some sort of other adjustments. How do you, how do you handle this, uh, Mike? Well, you know, uh, cloning uh, commercial beers is sort of a, you know, hard target to hit sometimes. Most of the beers that I consider to be my best beers are usually attempts at that, and then I just get off and end up making a uh, making them better. another beer that I actually like better than the commercial beer. Maybe I'm biased, but... Uh, yeah, I I, uh, I tended to go towards on the recipe side. If I can't get, like, a certain flavor in the end product, I don't mm-hmm. typically want to go modify my process too much. I might do, like, in the case of Melanoidins, I might take some portion of the wort and boil it on the stove and try to get a, mm-hmm. a thicker, you know, concentration of sugars and get more of a reaction, but... Um, so that's yeah, only, I think that's perfectly valid, too. Yeah, I mean, I don't. they're probably not doing something like that at the real brewery, but... I may have to do that as a workaround, if you will. That's right. You know, you take, you say to yourself, this beer, you know, in this process is missing a certain something, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do something to accentuate that right. character right. and add it in. Yeah, yeah, it puts sort of a burden on your palate or palate you can get your beer in front of, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I tend to do, uh, because if they say, well, this beer could use a little more melanoidin flavor, then you got your choices. You can go to the recipe or you can go to the process. But uh, well, that's a question I got for you, John. So are the melanoidins that are created through malting. I mean, if we get down to the, the, the molecular level, sure. the melanoidins created through malting, or maybe not to the molecular level, but the flavor level, can those be, I, I'm not saying they are ex- exactly, but could they be direct replacements for flavors that go through the boil, let's say? Or through some other part of the process, the kilning that happens creates some melanoidins. Are those the same melanoids? Would there be? Yeah, I, th- I think in, any in general, of that in general, yes, you would. You're going to in general, yes. In specific, it's going to be damn tough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's one of those things where in malting um, there are a lot of different melanoid reactions going on because you know there are literally hundreds of different sugars in malt mm-hmm. and you know thousands of different uh, different amino acids mm-hmm. and the combination of those produces you know that many more particular uh reactions and aromatics and flavors and so on right. so uh the the whether you produce them those you know particular flavors that you're looking for in a beer in the malting process or in the brewing process you know, yeah, you're going to get some of the same occurring because, mm-hmm. you know, the same ingredients. Uh, but proportions, uh, complements, you know, inter- interferences, you know, in terms of those flavors. Uh, you, I guess uh, this brings to mind a, a quote from Dr. Michael Lewis where he said, re- in his case relating to yeast, but, you know, a brewer has two choices whenever he, bre- whenever he rebrews a beer. He can brew the same beer or he can brew a different beer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, every time you change something, mm-hmm. it's going to produce an effect. Right. Now, whether that's a big effect or a small effect depends on all the other factors in the brewing. But, you know, in general, as you say, you can produce the same flavors uh, by using particular malts mm-hmm. as you can by using a particular process. Hmm. And, and, and maybe uh, it wouldn't be a direct one-to-one like you're saying, you know, if if, if, some, if brewery A is decoction mashing and you're adding, you know, something else. It may not be exactly the same, but, but could be pretty darn close as exactly, well. Exactly, right? yes, right? that's right. 
And the other thing that uh, I know you've been a big uh, uh, proponent of getting the word out on this is that uh, a lot of times people are not experiencing caramelization in the boil. Mm-hmm. They're experiencing melanoidin development. That's right. And uh, it has to do with the uh, concentration of the sugars and the oxygen and, and stuff like that, correct? Yeah, moisture level, gravity, um, you know, the duration of the boil. And uh, I th- I th- one thing I've really been, you know, we've been pushing and we pushed in Brewing Classic Styles is, you know, if the old school way was to do a high gravity boil on the stove, put all your extract into a, you know, three-gallon pot, add a little bit of water, you know, keep it you know, a couple inches from the end, <laughs> from the top so it didn't boil over, boil the crap out of that with your hops, and then dilute it in the fermenter. Well, mm-hmm. that produces a whole different spectrum of Maillard's and melanoidin formation mm-hmm. than if you had brewed, say, a full-volume boil mm-hmm. uh, of, you know, a lesser gravity that, you know, that concentrates slightly during that boiling time to, you know, the target gravity. Uh, going from high to low is different from low to mm-hmm. high. Well, and concentration of sugars have have an impact. That's right, and and the moisture level too, because mm-hmm. the moisture level uh, influences the, which sugars and which aminos combine. Uh, I have a note here that I wanted to mention was that in terms of the flavors, uh, you get you tend to get the baking type flavors you know warm warm bread bread crust from your high moisture low temperature maillards and then you tend to get uh, more of the toffee and raisin from your high temperature low moisture maillard reactions so wait a minute wait a minute didn't you say say high temperature low moisture twice maybe let me try that again (laughs) um uh, let's see let me let me we've all been drinking Yes. This is a beer show, after yes, all. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's part of the problem. Try so maybe, maybe maybe, I'm wrong. but I think I'll have another drink. Huh? Yeah. A uh, little bit of red rocket there helps. Uh, okay. Low temperature, high moisture, Maillard reactions produce malty and fresh bre- bread flavors. So low temperature, high moisture is the bready. Right. Okay. <clears throat> Most associated with right. you know, fresh bread. And the high temperature, low moisture. Sure, produce the toasty and biscuit on at mm-hmm. the low end. Mm-hmm. And then as you take that progression higher, higher temperature, lower and lower moisture, now you get into... Caramelization. Car- a little bit of the caramelization to toffee. Uh, you get into um, some... Or caramel flavors. Caramel not, flavors. Not technically caramelization, but caramel flavors. Caramel flavors, Melanoidin-derived right. caramel Caramels. flavors. And you can even take that farther into some fruity flavors, such as plum and raisin. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, into chocolate and coffee right. also come out of those Marriott reactions. Which is one of the things you get in uh, Doppelbach. You kind of get those plum, raisin, and I think it's it's not necessarily all uh, melanoidin-driven, but, uh, you know, melanoidins, other grain flavors, other, other, uh, other uh, of those flavors along with the alcohols. Yeah, and uh, fermentation it all kind of plays together to give you kind of a a plum fig raisin type of thing in in some of the doppelbox. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, the Maillard reactions do produce uh, a lot of key aromatics. They do produce actual esters. They're not the you know they're not the yeast esters, mm-hmm. the derived esters. They but they are in fact esters of, of phenols. They're uh, furfurals and other, you know, a whole bunch of host of other organic right. chemistry names that I'm not real familiar with. But uh, you do get these uh, esters 
coming entirely from the malt, from the Maillard mm-hmm. reactions, not from the yeast. And and that's fascinating because I think you can get that again through uh, you know decoction or yep. through you know heavy boiling or you know extended boiling or uh, you know heavy use of certain types of grains will even uh, add that's that right. kind of character. And it's, so it's all these uh, Maillard uh, reactions, all these melanoidins that come from these different sources could end up one way or the other, and and some of them obviously they'll they'll all be different, mm-hmm. but uh, they may all be acceptable. That's right. It, it it's it's you know common practice in home brewing. You know, if uh, if you don't have the equipment to do a decoction, add a little bit of some specialty malts like uh, melanoidin malt or mm-hmm. aromatic malt. You know, to supply some of these flavors that that have been produced during the malting process as opposed to during the boil or doing a, during a decoction. That's a, a, an excellent point. I think what we're going to do is take a short break, and when we come back. We're going to answer some some uh, listener email, although uh, first show, so these are emails that I got separately, but uh, they deal with that exact thing, decoction and and melanoidins, and uh, I think that'll be a perfect topic when we come back right after this. Keep your carboy cap on. This is Bruce Strong. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Sean O'Sullivan, the brewmaster and co-founder of the 21st Amendment Brewery and Restaurant in San Francisco. Six years ago, Nico Freccia and I opened the 21st Amendment on 2nd Street with the intent of bringing back the local neighborhood brew pub. Well, the neighborhood has really changed over the years, but the 21st Amendment still remains a great place for people to meet over a terrific meal and a tasty pint of beer. In the past, the only way you could enjoy the 21st Amendment's handcrafted beers was at the brew pub. Well, all that has changed. Now, the 21st Amendment beers are available in cans. That's right, cans. When was the last time you had a great beer in a can? Well, that day has come. We're offering our world-famous watermelon wheat and 21A IPA in cans. Cans are a better package than glass because cans keep the beer fresher longer, but you can also take cans to places where bottles can't go, like the beach, lake, golf courses, and sporting events. So join us in the revolution to take back the can from the big breweries and crack open a cold 21A craft beer in a can. The 21st Amendment, 563 2nd Street in San Francisco, just two blocks from Giants Park. Did you know that every day a brewcaster goes to bed hungry? Did you know that that brewcaster is silently calling for the help of people just like you? Do you know that every day the unicorn and the rainbow have to blow sailors for loose change? For less than the cost of a half-calf, quad-shot, venti, extra-hot, soy milk, triple-pump, hazel, low-fat foam, double-cupped macchiato a day, you can help starving adults in Pacheco. Your love can be felt for as little as seven cents a day. Visit thebrewingnetwork.com slash donate to sign up today for as little as $2 a month. Private first class in the BN Army. Buy your way up the ranks as corporal, sergeant, ranger, or colonel with an easy-to-do monthly donation that keeps brewcasters alive and your favorite internet radio station broadcasting. No donation is too small to help those in need. Can't you find it in your heart to share your love with a brewcaster? In return, you will enjoy the wealth of knowledge that comes with every episode of the session. The Jamil Show and Yes even that other show. Thank you for listening, and please sign up for your donation at thebrewingnetwork.com slash donate today. Entertainment you want. Yeah. 
information you need. The Brewing Network. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. We're talking melanoidins and then how you form them, what, why you'd want them in your beer, what they taste like, what the whole nine yards about melanoids. I think we covered uh, our uh, John Palmer here, our our resident expert uh, sitting in, is uh, covered uh, kind of some of the technical aspects of melanoid formation and uh, uh, you know how, where you get them. And now I think we're going to kind of shift uh, gears a little bit and. Kind of look at the the brewing aspect, what you do in your brewing, and how that is going to affect your beers, and and why you do one thing or another. You know, before the break, uh, John had mentioned decoction mashing, and uh, that's a that's a common question uh, that we get from from people uh, all the time. Uh, Greg uh, had emailed me, and he he had said. Uh, I want to decide whether or not I prefer a Hellas done with a time-consuming decoction to one done with a single infusion. I am assuming, maybe incorrectly, that the melanoidin malt and possibly the Munich is adding to is uh, added to give some of the character that would be would have been there from a decoction and is therefore possibly redundant and may even be detrimental. You know, too much melanoidin. Right? Well, and, I, w- uh, I wouldn't do a decoction with melanoid malt. With a whole bunch of... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Too vegetal. I've right. done this before, you know, excessive boiling, excessive uh, melanoid malts, and you get it tastes like, uh, you know, rotten cabbage. Or, mm-hmm. you know, even, even uh, you know, just to intensity where, where, it's, where it's over the, over the hill. Uh, I guess my question really boils down to, would a German Hellas brewer doing a decoction use any malt besides Pilsner? And... Uh, I don't think so. You know, I think most of the, most of the cases, you if you're going to do a decoction uh, mash, you're gonna you're gonna stick with just the base malts, right? And or, uh, like, or like crystal, a little accent malt, maybe yeah, a Vienna. Yeah. Well, I avoid the crystals because again, t- too sweet. And I think your earlier point that uh, you know you're really not getting caramelization with uh, the formation of uh, melanoidins. Right. You're getting something similar to them. Uh, another interesting uh, point on that was. Uh, uh, a good, uh, a good uh, buddy of mine, uh, uh, Jason, Thunder Chicken Brewery, <laughs> which is his, his home brewery. He's out in, uh, I think he's out in Texas, and he uh, explains the large chickens. He, he uh, sent me an example of uh, the seventy shilling beer in uh, the Brewing Classic styles done with the uh, the concentrated boil. Okay. And you know there was some caramel flavors. The uh, the other flavors, the toasty, the bready, all those things were huge and uh, over the top. To he had o- kind of overdone it a little too mm-hmm. much boil. And uh, the thing that was kind of lacking was the caramel. You know, it had some caramel flavors, but it was lacking. <laughs> and he reduced okay. it down quite a bit. But again, you don't get quite the same caramel as you do from a caramel malt addition. Right. So in a beer like a, a Hellas. Where you know you really shouldn't have any caramel flavors. I would I would uh, I would go more with like the melanoidin or or the biscuity or something like that. Okay, right, right. I was now, thinking like a like a ten or a twenty, just as a pinch. Even then, a, a sweetener, too much. A sweetener for me. Okay. Um, now, I I have done uh, 
experiments with a decoction on one hand and as close as I could uh, a non-decoction of a, of a, of a basic uh, malt bill, you know, Pilsner malt. Right. And fermented them as identically as I could, et cetera, et cetera, boiled them ex- the same way. And the difference with a decoction is really, for me, didn't seem that significant. Not it's definitely not worth the trouble. And I know my um, good friend Tasty McDowell here, now, he doesn't do decoctions. Now, right. now, why is that, Mike? Well, I guess the main reason is I don't I generally make those beers that re- require that. But uh, I've made a Doppelbach and uh, had some success with that as an Icebach. And uh, must have created enough of the, the traditional flavors that it uh, came out pretty well. I do I do an extended boil when I'm making those beers. So Well, and I, re- I remember uh, that beer you, you gave me at... Uh, it was at uh, the World Cup of Beer in in Berkeley back uh, probably three years ago or four years ago. Uh, what beer is that? Uh, the Icebox. Oh yeah, and I tasted that, and it had uh, uh, a pretty uh, pretty rich melanoid development. Yeah, and no decoction. No decoction. No melanoid malts. Just all through the boil. Mm-hmm. So, w- which malts did you use in that beer? Oh man, I don't know if I can remember or not, I'm sure. No, I can't remember when. Any, I think they were just a standard, you know, the Pilsner, Munich, Pilsner, Munich, and uh, some darkening malt, probably. Okay. Uh, Graf is special. Graf, maybe, yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, but that you know, with the, with the good, a good vigorous boil and those malts, you can build yeah, that flavor, right? And I do a full wort boil, so I mean, mm-hmm. it was you know, and I do an aggressive boil, so I get a big reduction in volume. So I think that okay. Now see, that's another that's another key factor is you're trying to develop melanoidins mm-hmm. to do a you know a vigorous long boil, right? So what would what would the answer be for Greg then? Is it is it worth his time to do the decoction mash? Is it is it, uh, or you know, is it uh, like the Brewing Classic Styles book has? You know, toss in a little bit of a some melanoid type malts, aromatic. Uh, you know, it, it whatever whatever floats your boat as a as a brewer. You know, do you? Oh want, yeah, <laughs> floats my boat. I mean, we 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 talk to so many people at the at the conferences and on emails. You know. A lot of people are just interested in the final product, and a lot of people are mainly interested in the process. Mm-hmm. You know, they they love brew day, mm-hmm. uh, and then then that beer can sit in the fermenter or sit in the uh, in the kegerator, and they share it with their friends, and they're looking forward to the next brew day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so they're the ones going to be doing the decoction with the you know all pilsner malt mm-hmm. versus someone that's in, interested in drinking the beer. And uh, drinking, you know, a good a good example of the beer, mm-hmm. they can do that like Mike does, you know, single infusion mash, appropriate malts, you know, to to build that character without going through the decoction process. And Mike, what what would your take be on it? What should Greg do? Should he add the melanoid malts and go single infusion, or should he do the decoction with just Pilsner malt? Well, I don't see why you'd want to add the melanoid malts to. Uh to a Hellas uh, seems light touch to get that decoction. Well, I could see of a, I could see a small amount, yes, but I would definitely uh, consider the extended boil is uh, mm-hmm. another way to get there. So you'd go extended boil oh, instead yeah. of uh, well, and you know, any time you're using a lot of Pilsner malt, you want to use uh, at least a 90 minute boil right, to, at least to night, boil off uh, the, DMS, the uh, yeah. SMM, right. which is gets converted to DMS yeah. and uh, can can make your beer kind of cabbagey and all that. So you need at least uh, 90 minutes, uh, 100 minutes uh, to. Uh, uh, Very good point. Get get rid of that properly. Uh, for me, my 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 take on it would be uh, very similar to John's. It's like if you really enjoy doing a decoction mash, if if the process and for me, you know, the the brewing process actually for me is is a wonderful thing. It's like a vacation. 
You know, I get out there and, you know, I kind of tune out the rest of the world and I become one with my uh, uh, brew sculpture and I... uh, Get some uh, nasty burns. Yeah. (laughs) No, I've actually not gotten any burns. Lucky man. All the the batches I've brewed. But, uh, you know, I really enjoy that process of brewing and and converting the grains to wort and, you know, making a beer out of it. It's it's something that's really special to me. Yet I don't do decoction because that's that's a little too extra special to, for me. That that's 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 taken to the extreme. It's a lot of extra work, and uh, I don't know. I, I kind of take a certain pride in being able to dial in, know my my ingredients well enough to get whatever flavors I'm looking for just off adjusting of the recipe and saying, well, you know, you need a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and ah, there you go. You're you're real close to you know what you would have had with a decoction. And for some people, they, they, they fully believe in decoctions. Uh, other people, uh, uh, they don't think much of them. Uh, I know Den, uh, Denny Cohn, he did a, uh, uh, he twice said. he did decoction experiments that, right. uh, you know, he sent out the samples to people. I've, I've done twice the decoction experiments where I found there was very little difference. Uh, you know, there is a difference, but not enough mm-hmm. to well, really justify the work. Too. And, yeah, and, and that was the results he got back in, uh, in, in, uh, from uh, independent judging, the blind judging, nobody could really tell much of it. There wasn't a preference for one or the other. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I taste a difference uh, in blind tasting, but uh, again, I, yeah, I think uh, whatever you're getting, you can get you can get from the the grain. So I think that goes to what John was saying earlier. You know, melanoids are formed in many different aspects of the brewing process, right. and and what uh, Tasty's saying here, you know, extend a boil. Uh, different kind of grains, what I'm saying, or you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, yeah. or also uh, you know, uh, different you know, mashing or uh, you know, the maltster. Uh, that's why you know, a Durst Pilsner is different than a, a Vireman Pilsner. That's right. You know, they're both fantastic products. Can't go wrong either way, but they do have slightly different flavors, mm-hmm. and those are a fairly low melanoidin grain. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, there are mm-hmm. melanoids from the drying process and the, the kilning. But uh, definitely not huge, uh, right. fairly subtle, and uh, I find that that really fascinating. Now the, the decoction uh, mashing, uh, I somehow equate that to uh, creating a highly fermentable wort. Uh, when I do an extended boil, am I actually making a less? Am I actually pushing that in the other direction? Is that would that be a reason to do a decoction mash? If I do an extended boil, am I actually Decreasing the fermentable uh, sugars? I think in theory you are. Mm-hmm. To some extent. I mean... Because those sugars are converting to melanoidins. Right. Yeah. And that's not going to ferment. That's not fermentable. So. Yeah. But but and the, the other... The whole purpose of decoction... The reason decoction mashing was invented was because they were working with less modified malts. Okay. And right, right. So, you know, they needed they needed that kind of process to, to break the fermentable sugars. To straight. get the enzymes out of there. Yeah. Too, yeah. Right. So... You know, these days you can we don't we don't need the decoction for uh, f- f- to produce fermentable e- fermentable extract so much as we need it for flavor, and we have other avenues such as p- you know specific malts to get the flavors. Right. So it becomes as we were kind of alluding to you know whether you do a decoction or not depends on which ingredients you use and your love of the process. Gotcha. Okay, but you know, but you are correct that. Uh, doing a concoction will generate, you know, some unfermentables, and uh, you know what what you may, uh, especially in a highly modified malt, 
uh, you're not going to free up any more extract using a highly modified malt. You're probably going to end up with a net decrease in fermentable extract gotcha. as a result of that reaction. Well, okay. and, uh, you know, how the malt is kilned is also, uh, you know, kilning the malt yeah. reduces uh, fermentability of the of the sugars as well. Every, right. every little step along the way kind of reduces fermentability. So you also need to be careful, and I think that's a good point, back, back to Greg's question as to, you know, whether you should add that. You know, you... Uh, the more uh, melanoidin-rich uh, material you're providing, and the more you're creating melanoidins, the the less uh, fermentable it's going to be. You're lower. You're finishing. So there's a lot of lot of questions there. You know, you want to you want to make sure that your overall balance is not excessive. A Munichellis is a is a a bready, rich uh, beer, but you know, uh, well attenuated. Something you can drink in quantity. This is something you drink by the liter when you're in Germany. Yeah. And uh, if you're not able to drink a liter of it, you're excessive in either you know your residual sugars or, or melanoidins yeah. or your alcohol or whatever. It's, it should be something you you drink in quantity. Yeah. Let me let me point out one one final thing. The the decrease in fermentability as a result of the decoction we're talking about here, we're talking about a small effect. True. You know, five you percent know, or less kind of factor uh, as opposed to where you really notice decreases in fermentability is your, are your highly roasted malts, you know, your black barley, you know, your, your patent malt. Uh, those, those do, you, you definitely decrease the fermentability of those malts because of the extensive uh, melanoidin formation that takes sugars, you know, out of solution uh, from what was there previously. Okay. But, uh, you know, that's a big effect. What we're talking about here is in terms of Munich Hellas and decoction mashing, mm-hmm. small effect in for overall fermentability. Right. We're going to take another short break. And uh, when we come back, we are going to get into some more questions. This is would be the point where we get into uh, answering live questions from the chat room. And uh, you'd be able to uh, go to thebrewingnetwork.com. There is a uh, live chat button. You click on that, and that will take you in. And you can actually listen to the show live and interact with other brewers that are listening and uh, ask questions. And it's a moderated chat room, and they'll be able to uh, ask those of us uh, here at the end of the show. But uh, today, we're, looking forward to uh, we're just starting out, so there there is no no, no live chat today, which it, it feels kind of weird for me. I don't know. I really <laughs> I really love that part of the the whole show when I'm doing the uh, yeah, the Jamil show with uh, with uh, John Plisse. Uh But uh, in this case, uh, we don't have a live chat, so I got a few more uh, email questions, and when we come back, we will be talking about uh, the boil and uh, melanin formation during the boil. Brew right. Brew smart. Brew strong. This is Brew Strong. It's the hop shortage. No, not the organic, free-range, oyster Russian imperial coffee stout. It's all gone. We'll never brew again. Damn this hop shortage. Damn it to hell. Oi, f- away off your wee f***ing hop shortage, f- Who are you? A f***ing Scottish 80 shilling, and you cannot brew a Scottish 80 shilling like you was mixing f***ing cement with f***ing hops instead of gravel, you great f***ing ass. 
Use less hops, brew more beer. Northern Brewer has kits and ingredients for dozens of worldwide beer styles that don't require a lot of hops to make a great pint, like the bloodthirsty and abusive Scottish 80 shilling. Keep drinking great beer. Order at northernbrewer.com and get flat rate $7.99 shipping anywhere in the contiguous U.S. One beer kit, $7.99 shipping. One million beer kits, $7.99 shipping. Together we can beat this hop shortage. My Lambic! It'll only f***ing help it. This is www.thebrewsnetwork.com Sit down next to it, grab yourself a paper towel, and watch those yeast have sex. You're listening to the Brewing Network. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. Woo-hoo! We're back. Enjoying more Brew Strong. Indeed we are. <laughs> Learn, learning how to brew strong. Well, we're talking about melanoidins and you know where they're formed, all this. And one of the things that uh, George Fix uh, had mentioned in, I think it's uh, either uh, Principles of Brewing Science or Analysis of Brewing Techniques, he mentioned that you know when you get an evaporation rate exceeding fifteen percent, uh, you know everything starts to taste like a, a Bach beer, <laughs> and yeah, uh, you know I found that very interesting. And so I've always uh, kind of monitored uh, you know my uh, evaporation rate. And what's interesting is I think it, it depends a lot on the various uh, equipment. Uh, Mike uh, emailed me and he. Uh, he he was saying uh, he had met Denny at a at a conference and, uh, and they started talking about boil off and Denny mentioned that uh, I don't uh, that I uh, had mentioned something about evaporation rates and that uh, yeah I had said that it wasn't a concern until your evaporation rate was over sixteen percent but he didn't recall exactly why or what happened after that point I'm curious because I've switched to full boils and a converted keg using a propane burner my evaporation rate has skyrocketed to. 25%. He starts with 8 gallons, runs down to 6, and he's wondered, you know, what kind of symptoms is he going to find, what kind of problems is he going to find, and all that. Now, here's the thing that I find with, with evaporation is you uh, you can be any, you know, it, it depends on the equipment again, whether you're direct fire, steam fired, you know, uh, they all, I think, affect melanoidin formation differently. And uh, you know, uh, boil kettle geometry, all that stuff. If you Burn. get past a certain point, you do get a really kind of uh, excessive melanoidin production, where it can be offensive yeah. in the beer. It, it it can be over the top and and too much. And so that's not necessarily a specific percentage, but in general, it seems to me anything between uh, you know. Uh, 10 and 15% seems fine on most homebrew equipment, but it may be the case, I doubt it, but it may be the case on 25% evaporation that you're okay and it's great. Uh, me, I'd turn it down. You don't need you don't I need the so. boil leaping out of the kettle and smacking you in the face. You know, people try and get too vigorous a boil. That's a, the thing we're all taught when we start right. out homebrewing. Oh, you need a really vigorous boil. So we all crank the burner up to maximum and, you know, words flying out and hitting the ceiling. What you just need is an active surface yeah. of the beer or the wort, so that uh, you know the volatiles are are being cast off and it's it's being exposed. The, the whole boil, the whole wort is roiling through the kettle. Yeah, professionals itself. talk about thermal loading and excessive thermal loading and you know, degradation 
of the uh, foam character, the, you know, the flavor of the beer, uh, excessive melanoids. And, uh, yeah, I think I think if you are getting 25% evolution in a converted keg, because, you know, that's that's a system. Pretty that standard. Pretty system. standard. A lot of us brew on. Uh, 25% is probably, you probably, need to turn turn the boiler down. Probably, probably be closer to 15. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, if, you, if you're getting 25%, that means the last half hour you're, you've reduced it by, say, you know, it's already at 12.5% reduction. It's more concentrated for that whole length of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that adds to the you know the malware. And you and you're going to get get more malleards, and you're right. going to get more of the Bach flavor, like George Fix talked about. You know, or that you know, that type of character where you get the rich uh, concentration of malleards, melanoids. Yeah, my system, you know, with fifteen percent, that's about as high as I can go, and mm-hmm. I, I I tend to, you know, the evaporation of that of fifteen percent. And when we talk evaporation rate, we're talking percentage per hour. Okay, it's not fifteen percent over the entire time, and when you're going two or three hours, it's fifteen percent, or That's when right. you're going half hour, it's fifteen percent. No, it doesn't work that way. Per hour is is how evaporation rates are measured. So Good if point. you're if you're at uh, uh, you know uh, say ten percent at an hour, uh, you know in an hour and a half you've evaporated fifteen percent of of the the liquid volume, but that's still a ten percent. Evaporation rate, and uh, for me, a fifteen percent evaporation rate is about as high as I can go. Uh, I've gone down to eight percent, and I didn't care for the beer at that point. Mm. I think some Maillard reaction, some melanoid formation is important in every beer that you do, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it needs some boil character, but it doesn't right. take a whole lot, and uh, it can be overdone. I think mm-hmm. is is the answer for Greg or for Mike here. And uh, have you have either you you know experimented much with uh, evaporation rates? I haven't experimented with it. I mine's no. typically twelve to fifteen. I'm usually yeah. collecting seven and a half to eight and boiling down to uh, six and a half. Yeah, I've just I'm, learned over time to, and I measure. You know, I always uh, you know go for a target uh, knockout out of my boil. And uh, if I'm sh- if I'm over or short, I always make you know say, "Well, I must have you know boiled too high." So I make a mental note to back off in the boil or increase it next yeah. day. I always seem to have wort left over that mm-hmm. you know won't fit in the fermenter, you know, because I don't want it. Uh, I don't want to boil or you know coming out the, the coming out the top of the carboy. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, one of one of uh, Tasty's uh, rants that that I think is very important for for new brewers or for any brewer who hasn't realized this is is adjusting your boil, you know, your results of your boil, you know, measuring your wort gravity. Uh, you know, after the sparge, before you start boiling, oh, you know, in the yeah. middle of the boil, at the yeah. end of the boil. Uh, you know, I had checked mine before uh, that, but, uh, you know, after you mentioned that, I, I make a religion of checking. Uh, I do a lot of 90-minute boils, so I'll check at the very beginning. I'll check every 30 minutes uh, and adjust from there. And usually I can just... Uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm tracking right along where I usually do because I, I I have a, a sense of what the boil should be, mm-hmm. but uh, you know if your if your volume's too low, uh, you know, and the sugars are too concentrated, uh, you know that's going to affect your hop utilization. Yep. If it's uh, you know uh, thinner or more volume, uh, 
you know, again, it affects your 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 hop uh, utilization, your bittering, and you know, just the volume. Even if it doesn't affect utilization, it's volume. Yeah, right? it can so, affect the whole balance. Yeah, up here. The, you know, if you the have the hop balance, right? twenty five yeah. IBUs of of bittering that is dissolved into, uh, you know, uh, you know that amount of alpha, alpha acids dissolved into, uh, you know, four gallons versus dissolved into five or six, right. it makes a whole right. uh, completely different beer. And I think that's one of the things that Mike really, uh, you know, preaches very strongly. I think it's a, a very important point. Does the um, do we look for like the, the the Mallard reaction in every beer we brew, or is it just something we should only be concerned about in, you know, like these big uh, dark multi beers? I think it's something you look that needs to be understood. That it occurs in every beer, right? But in terms of what you're driving, I think that's most important in particular beer styles, such as Double Bach and and Russian Imperial Stout, and you know the malt, gotcha. the, the head, the heavier beers where you're looking for a malt dominated character. Well, and yeah, it, it's something in in part of every beer. That's like I was saying when I went down to eight percent on on some beers, it was totally lacking. But right. uh, uh, you know, and and it's a subtle character. You wouldn't say, ah, oh, that's melanoid and rich, but you'd be surprised without them how how insipid, insipid yeah. your, your beer is. Lacking character. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. But certain beers, uh, it's a it's a hallmark of the style. Box, uh, you know, a lot of your bigger beers, your barley wines, uh, uh, your, uh, you old know, it's a lot of your, yep. your old ale, your stouts, things like that. The interesting thing is from a lot of those stouts, you're getting those melanoidins from adding these character grains, the, the roasted barleys and mm-hmm. things like that. From other beers, again, a lot of it's from the grains where you can get from the boil, extended boils, or, uh, you know, especially for something like an old ale or uh, a mm-hmm. Scottish ale. You can, you can get from a uh, long boil for the processed parts. And I did get a, a another question from uh, another Mike about a... Uh, excessively malty aspect uh, of his beer. He's been getting comments and competition about how you know barley wine-like his double IPA has been. So I tried troubleshooting with him, and uh, you know what it came down to was he had switched to a different burner, and he had been uh, uh, boiling his wort on the stove on a couple of electric elements, and then he moved outside as uh, a lot of us are yep. eventually are forced throw, to do. Throw it outside. <laughs> yeah, we're, th- we're throwing outside <laughs> onto the patio. And then uh, he buys himself a, a propane burner, you know. It might have been one of these turkey Jeff fryer. Or, yeah, turkey yeah. fryer. 100,000 BTUs uh, or something. Turn that thing all the way up because, you know, now's your <laughs> chance to really boil this stuff. <laughs> and you get, uh, you know, too concentrated a, a flame and uh, excessive uh, or melanoidin development that mimics car- caramel flavors. Right. And uh, he started getting comments as to his double IPA being like a barley wine. Yeah, I, I've I've always told people I've been using superb uh, gas burners all my, you know, for the last what fifteen years when my in my brewing, uh, as opposed to the rocket burners, which is you know like a single orifice mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. you know hits the center of the keg. Um, these days, then you know you don't see superb burners very much, but it's the hurricane burners, or the Cajun cookers, where you have you know the burner element takes up a good you know six to eight inches across mm-hmm. you know the, across the bottom of the pot distributes that that uh, BTU number that you see on the box uh, that really helps you know reduce that character. Whereas if it's a single single flame, 
you know, you're going to get a hot spot on the bottom of the keg, and you're going to get a lot, you know, a lot of a lot more of the the. It's going to be a hotter boil in that local area than you would you get, what you'd get if it was distributed better. Well, now you know. Here's the thing. I uh, I got a good friend, uh, Dave Sapsis, brews excellent beer, and he's got one of them what they call the jet burner, uh-huh. and it's like a single. You know, the things like a like a rocket taking off. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah. And uh, but you know, I think he's got a you know a masterful touch with the burner control. He's got it dialed and in. And he knows exactly how much he can push it or not. And it goes with a fairly gentle boil and it works just fine. And I think, you yeah. know, the the ability of the liquid to uh, conduct the heat away, if you're not really pushing it, uh, you know, you're okay. It'll keep up. It's it, the it, thermal it'll, loading. It'll keep up. Yeah. And, and if, you, if you go too much and you're really, you know, heating that metal up, uh, you know, it really cannot conduct the, 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 the heat away. And, you know, uh, liquid conduction is very effective in carrying away heat, but you can uh, overload it. So you just need to be careful with that. And, again, somebody can make beautiful beer doing that. So, you know, it just depends on the brewer more than the equipment, I think. Yeah. And it sounds like my care, you know, change burners, kind of a new process, new, Mm -hmm. new, new piece of equipment. Takes a while to dial it in. You know, his first few beers, excessively malty. You know, more malleards than he was used to in his previous process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's going to either have to adjust his recipe, or you know, learn to finesse that piece of equipment and to get to get the kind of flavors he's looking for. Mm-hmm. Well, I, that's what I told him. I said, you know, just back down on, on uh, you know your boil, and you know, see if that that results in a better better uh, beer. You know, more along the lines of what he needs. So I'm right, huh? <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yes. You're right. Okay. All right. So. So should we recap here? Do you think we've you've covered this topic? I, you know, it's a huge subject. With all mm-hmm. you know, we could probably do this for hours on end. But I think we kind of nailed down. Uh, you know, uh, the 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 original question from Steve was, you know, what are melanoidins and you know how does he get them in his beer? I think the answer is melanoidins are a lot of those flavor compounds that are developed through uh, you know things like kilning of the malt uh, and you know the boil or you know special things like decoction mm-hmm. and uh, they're cooking flavors. Cooking flavors like the the difference between you know a, a piece of uh, white bread and a piece of white bread that's been toasted those right. have uh, melanoidins that have been microwave steak microwave versus grilled <laughs> steak or boiled steak versus yeah. grilled steak you know those those flavors are very important that's what makes those foods taste so good this is the same thing on the beer so uh you know how do you go about getting those in your beer steve you go about it by uh you know for for tasty mcdole and myself uh, and I, I don't know, you know, maybe John's along the same way most of the time. I think you've done some decoctions, but I don't yeah, know if you're really in favor of doing them a lot or I, know, more for the joy of it. Yeah, I, I'm. I, the reason I do decoctions is I'm lo- I'm looking for conversion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm looking. F- I'm starting out with you know Moravian malt, low he modification. Wants to save five cents in malt, <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah, I'm going for it. I'm going spend, for the numbers. He's going to spend a couple of dollars in propane, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, uh, so you, you have a couple of options there. You know, you can go with your recipe. You can tweak your recipe and, uh, you know, add a little more melanoid character, like uh, I believe it was uh, Greg that was asking. You can, uh, you know, you can skip the decoction, go that route. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like uh, Palmer here is, is going, you could you can uh, do the decoction and, uh, you know, develop some melanoids that way. Or... Even still, you can develop your melanoids in the boil. 
like uh, Tasty here, he right. relies very heavily on the boil when he needs. He'll go with a longer boil uh, time to mm-hmm. to develop a lot of the melanoidins. I don't think you really want to go excessive on the heat. Like uh, uh, Mike was having a problem with that that hot burner. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you need to be careful of that, and uh, it's style dependent as well. That's you, right. know, you want melanoidins in every beer you brew. It's like uh, every food you cook. You want some sort of melanoidins, or it tastes, you know, very, yeah. uh, very, very plain. And uh, so you want them in every beer. But certain types of foods need more. Uh, you know, oatmeal doesn't require a lot of melanoidins, <laughs> but you know, steak needs to be grilled, and you need, uh, you know, some char on there and all that stuff. And that's yep. that's really what 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 brings it home, right? Mm. Anything else to add to that? That recap? Just said I'm hungry for a steak. Yeah, I know. I'm, I, <laughs> I think we need steak and beer. Mm. We have plenty of beer here in the, the Brew Network salt, Studios. Okay, you guys, are, you guys are just out of control now. <laughs> All right. So, uh, what you want to do is, uh, if you're listening to this show live, uh, the next show would be in about two weeks. And you'll be able to download, or uh, if you're listening on the podcast, you'll be able to download that in about another two weeks. If you're listening live, usually we're going to do one or two uh, uh, sessions uh, back-to-back. And as always, if you're listening live, it'll be posted uh, when the live shows are. You can find that at thebrewingnetwork.com. It'll list when the shows are live. You can join the live chat. Uh, Make sure that you're uh, sending us uh, emails at brewstrong at thebrewingnetwork.com. And again, the whole purpose of our show is to help you learn how to brew strong. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Good show, everybody. Be strong. Out. Oh.